Romans 11, beginning at verse 1. I ask then, has God rejected his people? By no means. For I myself am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Do you not know what the scripture says of Elijah, how he appeals to God against Israel? Lord, they have killed your prophets. They have demolished your altars, and I alone am left, and they seek my life. But what is God's reply to him? I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. So, too, at the present time, there is a remnant chosen by grace. But if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. What then? Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking. The elect obtained it, but the rest were hardened. As it is written, God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes that would not see and ears that would not hear, down to this very day. And David says, Let their table become a snare and a trap, a stumbling block and a retribution for them. Let their eyes be darkened so that they cannot see and bend their backs forever. So reads the Word of God. The doctrine of election that we encounter in Romans 9 through 11 with unparalleled specificity, the doctrine of election is one of the most divisive points of theology in all of church history. You don't have to be a Christian very long before you realize the truth of that assessment. In summary, what we're talking about there, what is the doctrine of election and what what sense does it make? How can it be put in understandable terms? Well, granting that human beings are responsible for their own sin and therefore accountable to God for it, does God alone apply the saving work of Christ? Reconciling sinners to Himself based on His own sovereign will? Or do those human beings, self-aware and responsible for their sin as they are, cooperate with God somehow. Most likely by having him neutralize in some way the impact of their inherited sinfulness so that they actually are able to decide to repent and believe in Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord. To be clear, we believe here that Scripture unequivocally teaches the former, that salvation is the work of God from beginning to end. And we are grateful for that. That's really just an embellishment of the very statement Paul makes at the beginning of this letter, that salvation is by faith from first to last. So we teach that salvation is a work of God from beginning to end with human beings doing nothing but receiving it by faith. That faith itself being a gift of God according to Paul's letter to the Ephesians. But that aside, 
The doctrine of election is given to us in Scripture not as a point for theological debate, but to provide relational confidence, to provide spiritual comfort, emotional comfort even, reassurance that salvation is in God's hands. So we don't need to worry that we're going to have enough discernment to see it, for instance, or, or intelligence to understand it, or faith to believe it, or wisdom to choose it, or determination to stick with it. We don't have to worry about any of that because salvation is in the hands of the Lord. Just as there's no way we can achieve our salvation by our own human effort or even contribute to it, there's also, by virtue of that, no way we can mess it up. I think that's good news today, don't you? We're going to be talking a bit about that. Our God is reliable. That's what Paul is preaching and teaching here in these three chapters, really throughout Romans, but focusing in on it over these three chapters of 9 through 11. Our God is reliable. And when he opens our eyes to the undeniable truth of our sinful rebellion against him, and therefore our state of spiritual death before him, then when he saves us by his sovereign grace, cleansing our sin, reconciling us to himself, and making lavish promises to us about our eternal future with him in heaven, we can believe him. We can trust him. We can take him at his word. Salvation is his to dispense. We can be confident that he will keep his promises forever and never forsake us. Paul is tracing out the implications of this doctrine as we move into Romans 11. It's been central in his thinking. It is the answer to the question, what about the Jews? He's still under the heading here that he began in chapter 9, verse 6, where he said, it is not as though the word of God has failed. There's the title over this whole three-chapter section. It is not as though the word of God has failed, and Paul is laying out precisely how. Grand promises were made to the church, especially in Romans 8, but even leading up to Romans 8. Do you remember those promises? It's been a little while ago since we were in chapter 8. The Spirit helps us in our weakness and intercedes for us. The Holy Spirit of God is attentive to us spiritually and prays for us. So does the Son of God. All things work together for good in our lives. There's the central promise that is the springboard for going into Romans 9 through 11. Having given us his own son, God will also graciously, along with him, give us all things that are pertaining to life and godliness. And nothing, nothing will be able to separate us 
from his love in Christ Jesus our Lord. Those are a sampling of the promises we heard in chapter 8. Are those trustworthy promises? And how can we be sure? They're grand promises, but grand promises were also made to Israel, and those don't all seem to have been kept in the way that we would have expected. So what are we to make of this? That's what Paul's addressing. What's happened with Israel? In fact, as chapter 10 came to a close, Paul was quoting Isaiah 65 with regard to the Jews. All day long I have held out my hands to a disobedient and contrary people. Really? These are God's chosen people? We've finished the introduction here in Romans 11 that we just read together, and it finishes on a pretty dark note there as well. We'll come back to that later. So can we trust the promises we just heard? Yes, our salvation is in God's hands, but is it reliable? That's what Paul's addressing. We hear him addressing just such questions as these in today's text. So let's handle them in three parts here. And you can see the three parts listed there in your bulletin. That's our outline this morning. We first of all are looking at another rhetorical Q&A in just the first verse and a half. Then beginning in the middle of verse 2 through verse 6, a rich historical example worthy of going back into 1 Kings and reading the story of Elijah. That is such a rich period in Israel's history with great stories. One is spotlighted here by Paul as a, just a, a, a brilliant example of what he's talking about. And then third, a startling theological insight in verses 7 through 10. So let's walk through this together. Another rhetorical Q&A here beginning in verse 1. We read it just a moment ago. I ask then, has God rejected his people? We should be able to anticipate Paul's answer by now. This is the ninth time out of ten that we've heard it in the text. What is he going to say? By no means. All right, there it is. I asked then, has God rejected his people? By no means. No way. Why? How does Paul know? For I myself am an Israelite, he said. Paul himself is the clearest proof. He's a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. And Paul's own life stands in demonstration of that fact. And by the way, while we're here, because that really covers the content of the Q&A, verses 1 and 2, first half of 2, but Paul's also a, an example of how God saves that's important to pick up on and just note while we're here making reference to the, the, the status of his salvation and what it means, salvation historically, it's good to pause for a moment and say that Paul is also a good example of how God saves. Just like Job, where we understand God's purpose in his suffering better than we understand God's purpose in our own suffering because God showed us his purpose in Job's suffering, the very same thing happens with regard to the salvation of Paul, to God's saving in Paul's life. We don't know how God went about saving us. But we know with Paul because God showed us. It's recorded three times in the book of Acts. Acts 9 and 22 and 26 
We get a sense of what God's doing in the life of the Apostle Paul, and we're getting a little window behind the curtain to see God doing His saving work. And it was a, a grand and glorious, sovereign demonstration of power and authority to save. Wasn't it? Was it any less so with you and me? We don't know the story. But this is how God saves. If God doesn't save this sovereignly, we might say, I'm not sure that's the best syntax, but I think it communicates. If God doesn't save this sovereignly all the time, it would be highly questionable for Him to do it at any time. For instance, Saul of Tarsus, who Paul was before he became the Apostle Paul, Was Saul of Tarsus any less deserving of self-determination than the rest of humanity? That God should save him without his consent? Was Paul more lost or broken than you or me? Or is this just how God saved Paul and there's a special purpose for it so we're told the story but it's also a window into how God saves each and every one of us. Now, Paul is just a case study of how God saves. Even though we don't know how God did it with us like we do about how he did it with Paul. That's an important point to note just as we're moving through this section. But this insight is helpful to us toward understanding the doctrine of election. We can appreciate it a little bit more when we see it at work like that in a very practical example. But you know what? There's even more particular help that's offered here in Romans 11 by remembering Paul's conversion. And that moves us into this second section of a rich historical example. There's more help that's given to Romans 11 by remembering Paul's conversion. Not only do we not really know how God saves, but we don't always know that he has saved or shall we say, that he has saved. And what I mean by this is that when God does the saving, then he can save many more people in many more places than we're even aware of. There could be redeemed brothers and sisters in this world that we don't even know about. That's not a, all that unusual, amazing stories come out of Russia or China or Albania or, or many, many other less developed nations that affirm this truth. Not all of them as dramatically as what I'm about to say, but we can see evidence of God being at work even in places where we didn't even know somebody had been. And one of the more easily traceable, we can look at the nation of China over the last 50 years. Operation World reports that there were roughly 2.7 million evangelical Christians in the People's Republic of China in 1975. But by 2010, 35 years later, 75 million. Even while the eyes of the world and of the church were all but blocked from that nation by the tight controls of an atheistic government. Stunning. God is at work. 
when we seek God to send out laborers into his harvest field, my friends, don't ever believe that they haven't gone unless you've seen them. Do you remember Jesus' words to Thomas? You've seen and believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet believe. Our God is always at work. And he's always building his kingdom. God is always at work, and Paul wants his readers to know that, so he tells the story of Elijah. After Elijah had won that great victory against the prophets of Baal, calling down fire from heaven, and, 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 and had the people put the prophets of Baal to death, Jezebel, the wife of Ahab, king of Israel, threatened to do the very same to Elijah the same that he had instructed the people of Israel to do to the prophets of the false god. And Elijah was terrified right on the heels of having experienced this great victory. That's the historical setting behind Paul's question here in verse 2. Do you know what Scripture says of Elijah, Paul asks, how he appeals to God against Israel? And then he gives us Elijah's words. Verse 3, Lord, they have killed your prophets, they have demolished your altars, and I alone am left. That was Elijah's belief. And they seek my life. Elijah's calling out to God saying, what chance do I have? Verse 4, but what is God's reply to him? I have kept for myself do you hear it? Sovereign election. I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. Then Paul observes, so too at the present time there's a remnant chosen by grace. My friends, God is always at work. He's not going to leave his promises unfulfilled. He's He's not going to allow his covenant community to, to dwindle to zero. As Jesus said to Peter, I will build my church and the gates of hell will prevail against it. God is at work building his kingdom. There was a remnant in Elijah's day. And Paul is saying the same thing with regard to the Jews in his day and his own life is proof of it. That's what we've heard so far. Have you considered that if God is not sovereign over the granting of his salvation, then this whole line of questioning that we're following here in Paul's letter to the Romans is strangely misdirected? Just to cut to the chase, Paul should be asking here, asking Israel, why aren't you choosing to trust Christ? What's the matter with you people? But that's not the question he's asking. And even so, if it were the question he was asking, it is only God who can answer the question. And he does answer that question here with what follows. His answer is that Israel isn't embracing Christ because they're presently under judgment. Their eyes have been blinded by a judicial hardening of God that we'll see in just a moment, just as he said he would do. This work of salvation is playing out precisely as God said it would. But we're getting a bit ahead of ourselves here. First, we need to finish this thought 
of affirming that salvation is fully by grace alone, and then we'll move into that section where Paul gives us this startling theological insight. You see in verse 5, at the present time there is a remnant chosen by grace, and then Paul adds, verse 6, but if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. God has done it all himself, is what Paul is saying. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. This is what it means that salvation is by grace. So what does this all mean for Israel? Well, that's precisely Paul's question that moves us into this final section. Verse 7, what then? That's essentially what he's asking. What does this all mean for Israel? Even though it could seem like God has rejected his people just by mere observation, we don't see great numbers of Jewish believers in Christ even now to this day. Even though it could seem like God has rejected his people, that is not what's happening here. Paul wants to make sure that his readers know it. Continuing on in verse 7, what then? Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking. He doesn't tell us what, he, what Israel was seeking here because he already told us at the end of chapter 9. Chapter 9, beginning in about verse 27 through to the end of the chapter, verse 33, is talking about the very same themes as here. And Paul is depending on our knowledge of that section to fill it in. Israel has failed to obtain what it was seeking. What it was seeking was a law that would lead to righteousness. Chapter 9, verse 30. But they did not succeed in reaching that law, we read there. Why? Verse 32. Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as if it were by works. They stumbled over the stumbling stone. And then Paul quotes the Old Testament again, saying this has been God's plan all along. This is how salvation history is playing out. So, verse 7, Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking. The elect obtained it, but the rest were hardened. Important point here, especially as we build toward the remainder of chapter 11. The elect here most likely is speaking now of true believers from among the Jews. Like Paul. Ethnic Israel who has trusted Christ as Savior. He's not again talking here as he did at the close of chapter 9 about the elect that includes both Jews and Gentiles together. It's another way of talking about the elect and he's used that already in this letter. But here at this stage of the argument it appears he's talking about ethnic Israel and saying the elect from among Israel like Paul himself, Jews who trusted in Christ obtained this righteousness that is by faith. But the rest, he says, were hardened. So, the bulk of Israel, that is the remaining part after the remnant of faith is separated out, the bulk of Israel is under a temporary judgment from God. And I'm importing that word temporary from later in the chapter. We'll get to why I say that is temporary in the next couple of weeks, God willing. But for right now, I'm just going to stick it in there and say the bulk of Israel is under a temporary judgment from God and, it, and that's so according to his eternal plan, his eternal purpose, his sovereign 
salvation being dispensed. And Paul draws once again from the Old Testament to make that point clear. He's quoting all of these Old Testament texts so that he can tell his New Covenant readers, this is God's plan. This is what he's intended. This isn't new. We're not calling audibles at the line of scrimmage. We're not changing the game plan to try to fit the facts. We're telling you this is what God said was coming. And so he's quoted the Old Testament through these three chapters over and over and over again to prove the point, to let us know this isn't catching God off guard at all. This is God's saving plan getting played out. So here at this critical point where he's making the case that even among Israel there's a remnant that is elect and the rest are hardened under God's judgment, Paul quotes all three sections of the Hebrew Bible in the next three verses in order to underscore that point. He quotes the law and the prophets and the writings saying that the entirety of God's word agrees on this point. He quotes first from Isaiah 29, just a brief statement at the beginning of verse 8. And in Isaiah 29, if we were to flip over to that, judgment is pronounced on Jerusalem. And then he adds in the remainder of that verse from Deuteronomy 29, verse 4. That's Moses warning Israel before they enter into the promised land, telling them, you guys aren't going to follow the Lord when you get here. It's a stunning section of Deuteronomy. I still grieve the fact that our study in Deuteronomy was interrupted by COVID, and we've never gotten back to the final third of that immense book. Maybe, God willing, at some point we will. But that's a stunning part of it. When, Paul, when, when Moses... <laughs> when Moses is preaching to Israel before going into the land, telling him it's not going to work. Breathtaking. And then in verses 9 and 10, Paul is quoting from Psalm 69, verses 22 and 23. It's a prayer of David that has several messianic echoes in it. But he's picking up on a section where David is turning his attention toward his enemies and, and praying for the judgment of God to fall upon them. And he's drawing that in with these other two passages here to demonstrate his point. So the linkage between Psalm 69 and Isaiah 29 and Deuteronomy 29 is all in the reference to the darkening of eyes, closing their minds to the understanding of God's saving grace. Feeling the weight of their sin, you can see there in that last line of verse 10. Those in Israel who reject Jesus remain under God's judgment, Paul is saying, and God himself is holding them there by his sovereign decree. And there's our text for today. I said a little earlier that just as chapter 10 finished in some darkness, our text today, the introduction to chapter 11, is similar. It surely feels like we're under a dark cloud as it comes to a conclusion, doesn't it? But I would suggest to you that it's one of those dark clouds that has a silver lining. A silver lining which we should notice before we finish this morning. 
without even looking ahead to the positive outcome that is promised to ethnic Israel as this chapter 11 draws to a conclusion, we can discern that silver lining just in what we've heard today if we're listening to it attentively. If we're actually noticing what Paul is saying here, that silver lining should begin emerging. So what is it? I would say the disturbing unbelief we see here among ethnic Israel that Paul is spotlighting, and by the way, a a, a disturbing unbelief that we still see in our day. This that Paul's writing about two millennia ago is still present today. This disturbing unbelief, though, is not irreversible. We should see that in what's been written already if we're listening to it attentively. And the test for that is that's precisely where Paul goes as this chapter progresses. But we don't even need to get to the end of it in order to see what he's doing here and to see the implications of what is going on. It's not an accident of history this disturbing unbelief in Israel. It's not an accident of history that's somehow going to depend on some level of human effort or or evangelistic strategizing or human persuasiveness for resolution. Oh, God will almost certainly keep His promises through raising up the church and sending them with the gospel message because that's how He's purposed for salvation to spread. And those stories I mentioned to you earlier, so often the story is we, we weren't even aware of a missionary that came in a century ago with the gospel, and now there's gospel work going on there, and when we think we're going into an unreached people group, we meet the gospel already present. God is always at work. So almost certainly the answer to what we see with regard to the salvation of Israel will happen through the mobilization of the church, carrying the gospel in obedience to the Great Commission. But what we recognize here is that it won't depend on the human effort or ingenuity or strategy or persuasiveness to be successful. It will be successful because God has planned it so. The good news here, the silver lining, is that God is behind this hardening It's a sovereign work of God in judgment on His sinful people. And He is a God of sovereign grace, a God of sovereign mercy, a God of love and forgiveness, of judgment, yes, according to His perfect holiness and righteousness and justice. But He's a God who delights to forgive and to cleanse and to heal and restore and save. Amen? He's promised to do all of this. And we can already see, even at this stage of this chapter, that everything which makes it seem dark and disturbing is actually happening under the all-seeing eye of God and according to His eternal plan in which He promises to work all things together for good. 
Put another way, the fact that it's God himself who's inserted this season of judgment into Israel's history means that it can be lifted at any time of his choosing. And I would suggest to you that as we're encouraged to pray for the peace of Jerusalem, that is exactly what we're praying for. For the work of God to be done among them. The restoration of a nation, eh, maybe. That's a distraction. For the salvation of the chosen people of God. That's what we pray for. For Israel to meet Jesus as their Messiah. That's what we need to be praying for. So the fact that it's God himself who's inserted this season of judgment into Israel's history means that it can be lifted at any time of his choosing. It's not random. It's not chance. Again, it's not dependent on human resources to resolve it. Just as David did in Psalm 69, we can call out to God for his mercy and grace and deliverance. And we have promises throughout the New Testament that say that he's listening and will hear and respond. The writer of Hebrews says we can call out to God and know that we will find mercy and grace to help in our time of need. That's good news, isn't it? In fact, this all comes together for our bottom line today, and this is our calling. We need to live in the assurance that God is never going to make promises and then fail to keep them. There's our simple bottom line. We need to be strengthened through the ministry of God's Word by His Spirit to live in the assurance that God is never going to make promises and then fail to keep them. Paul is going through an extended exercise here in Romans 9 through 11, but in all honesty, he should have been able to say, what about the Jews? Did God reject them? Are you kidding me? Have you heard the promises he made? He's not going to fail to keep them. What's next on the agenda? But essentially, Paul's taking three chapters under the inspiration of the Spirit to lay this out so that we can walk along with him and gain assurance that God is never going to make promises and then fail to keep them. And just to finish with that thought, this too is a work of his sovereign grace in our lives. (laughs) Strengthening us in our full assurance of his salvation and in our unwavering trust in his promises. That's how we can pray for one another. Even as we pray for God to end this season of judgment on the old covenant people, we can be praying for his spirit to strengthen the church in full assurance of their salvation and an unwavering trust in his promises so that we are suitable vessels to carry that message of salvation through which God sovereignly works to save the Jews and the nations, all of them, by one and the same Savior. A glorious gospel. Amen? Let's pray together, and then let's remember the Lord who purchased it for us. Heavenly Father, thank you in Jesus' name. 
for the good news that has come to us through his own sacrifice, through his death and resurrection, paying the penalty of our sin and gaining victory over sin and death for all who believe. Father, this is a remarkable passage of Scripture that we have looked at this morning, and it is the introduction to one that just continues to swell as it progresses. But this morning, I pray that we might come away with renewed confidence in holy, wise, loving, merciful, gracious, saving character of our God. May we be strengthened in our assurance and in our belief in your promises to the praise of your glory, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.